Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett, and today I'm joined by Thomas Hummel. He is the head of smell and taste outpatient clinic of the Department of Otorhinolaryngology of the Technical University of Dresden. We're very lucky to have him here today to give us his time to talk about all his research on olfaction and other things. And so welcome, Thomas. Thank you so much for coming today. Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm really happy to be here and and uh, having the chance to talk to you. And you said it correctly, otorhinolaryngology. So this would open the door to our department. Only people who can spell it out flawlessly, <laughs> they get a job here. <laughs> I won't tell you what training I did before the start of the podcast. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you so much. Can you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and how you became interested in olfaction research and what you're doing in the hospital there to help patients and what the main issues are would be really helpful for us. I'm a medical doctor. I was trained in Erlangen in Germany, which is close to Nuremberg, which is close to Munich. And then uh, I was interested as a medical student first in pain. And then first I was interested in my wife. And she was doing research in affection. Almost 25 years now in Dresden, we set up a shop here, like a smell and taste clinic, and which is um, like a small unit. Not too many people work here. Currently, there are 15 people work here and a couple of many medical students work here and we see patients from the surroundings of Dresden of course but also from all over Germany and also from all over Europe we even had um, like I think two patients from Australia what does that mean it doesn't mean that we are very good but it does mean that there are not so many people who would take care about the sense of smell clinically so if you lose a sense of smell and you look for somebody who can help you you um you know there are not so many choices around and so this is why many people come to us and seek help also showing that many people can be quite desperate when they when it's about smell loss so they go great length to find somebody who can talk to them intelligibly you know so uh, it's kind of this is it's it has a couple of opens shows a couple of dimensions what affective loss can mean to people so this is the thing that's so interesting about your work that so people listening to my podcast are interested in thriving minds, cognition, how to get improve um, through brain health. And I think the connection between smell and cognition that you write about in your review papers and others is something that people may not be aware of, nor the importance of olfactory training that I think you do in your clinic and other people may not be aware of. So I'd love you to talk about those three things, if that's possible. Now, let's start with affective training. As a consequence of affective loss, uh, there's not so many options when people lose their sense of smell, what they can do. So they can wait, of course, just sit in front of their TV and let time pass, and then the sense of smell would come back or would not come back, so things would happen. But one can amplify that effect with smell training. What does it mean? It means that people expose themselves to four odors every day, like in the morning and in the evening, for 30 seconds for each odorant. So let's say rose, lemon, cloves, eucalyptus. These are the four odors that we recommend. And people sniff each odor 30 seconds, uh, morning and evening, for a long period of time, for three to six to nine months. And this helps olfactory receptor neurons to regrow. We know that from research in animals, we just have some uh, preliminary data in where we did this in mice, 
you see when we expose the mice also to odors, then they regrow more neurons. They also express more receptors. The horizontal basal cells, they are amplified. In humans, we see similar things that also there are more responses that we get from the olfactory mucosa. So it seems to be, seems to help that. In addition, we find that olfactory training uh, changes the brain. So it also activates, the, it increases the volume of the olfactory bulb, increases the volume of other brain areas, and um, also helps increase connectivity between brain areas. So this is all effects that we find for when people do the smell training compared to people who do not do the train of the smell training. So smell training, exposure to odors helps you to increase your sense of smell. When you talk about cognitive functions, we of course we see that as a consequence when people, we had that in a couple of studies and also people in Sweden saw the same thing when, or similar thing, when people have affected loss and they regain affective function even with smell, with smell training or without smell training. So then they also, their verbal abilities, when they do smell training, their verbal abilities, they increase. And this is sort of unique. It's kind of that you have a transfer of, of uh, sensory function, of improvement or change in a sensory function to cognitive function. This is not seen so often. So, but obviously this seems impossible. How that can be, what are the mechanisms behind that? Uh, it's lots of speculation about it, but the sense of smell is connected a little bit differently than like vision and hearing. It's more directed to uh, basal parts of the brain, like to the amygdala, to the piriform cortex, to the hippocampus. So they're very direct connections in the olfactory system. And this may be the basis for this increase in uh, some cognitive abilities. So, and accepting that, that uh, the sense of smell can help. It doesn't work wonders, you know, but but it helps you to increase your cognitive abilities to some degree. And if one accepts that, then this could also be helpful in a couple of other situations, you know, where people have cognitive decline or so. One could imagine that, uh, like, affecting training or exposure to odors would help them to ameliorate the, the symptoms or slow down the process of decrease something like that so so what are you doing um uh, olfactory training for in your medical practice oh we do it mostly for patients of course with olfactory loss and so they we instruct them to do smell training and of course we want to see how it works so we look at the olfactory mucosa we do uh, we look at receptors how they are where they amplify their where the cells, the cellular components are changing, where the mucus is changing in the affected mucosa, or where the brain is changing. These are very important questions that we have. So, we also have some, sorry, please. No, no, go ahead. We also have some uh, experiments in people with mild cognitive impairment. And what we see there is that also in the brain, we see some differences in activations, actually in the orbital frontal cortex, in the, in the frontal lobe as such. So, it seems to change things. So this is what we would see in, in, in mild cognitive impairment. So you're, are you starting those longitudinal studies? Are you to see if olfactory training can actually improve um, some cognitive function in mild cognitive impairment in patients? Exactly. This is the exciting thing 
but these studies, uh, whether this can change something or to what degree it can change. It's in our pre preliminary results of what we had so far, they indicate that something changes when you expose yourself to odors. The effects are not smashing, you know, like not when you start to sniff for odors like for two weeks, then that you become uh, intellectually yeah. improved. Uh, but there's a subtle change there. And this may help to also stop some decline in in cognitive function. This is like what we what the hypothesis would be, and this is what we're currently investigating. Yeah, we have I'd, some indications that it does something, but we we are working on it. I'd love you to speculate on because uh, neurogenesis happens in the olfactory bulb and the hippocampus. I mean, obviously, people know about the hippocampus a lot about where we get new learning. I would like you to speculate around whether this olfactory smell training can stimulate neurogenesis and that may be contributing to the improvement in some aspects of cognition. Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. So it's like when it's about neurodegeneration or neuroregeneration, I think it's very clear for the human olfactory mucosa that cells are reborn and regrown. When it comes to the olfactory bulb, there's an argument, there's a discussion about it, whether in humans you have regeneration at the level of the olfactory bulb. There's very nice work from New Zealand, from uh, Maurice Curtis and co-workers. They showed in a publication, I think it was 2005, published very nicely, that in humans also there's regeneration at the level of the olfactory bulb, and there's also influx of neurons to the olfactory bulb from the midbrain. So, but there's other work from Sweden showing that or indicating that in humans there is no regeneration at all. So there's some argument about it. Yes. When we look at the olfactory bulb, we also see that 20% uh, of the active genes in the olfactory bulb, they relate to regeneration. So, of course, you have many interneurons that are changing there. And so, so it's an, uh, this question is, open to discussion right now, but assuming that what we clinically see is that the volume of the olfactory bulb is changing a lot. So when you stimulate yourself, or when you do this olfactory training, and you do it for, we did that in students, and uh, our students did it, like one only students, and they, the idea was that we uh, do training on the left side, and we do training on the right side. And so the students, they, uh, they closed one nostril, sniffed only on the right side, and the other half of the students, they closed the right nostril and sniffed only on the left side. And the assumption was that when they sniff on the right side, olfactory bulb on the right side would become large in volume. This was not so, but actually the olfactory bulb on both sides increased. So it increased by 13%, like 1-3%. So wow. quite substantial increment over time. Um, and... So it also shows a couple of things that you can change, even if you're healthy, you can change your effective function, at least on a structural level. And it also shows that the brain obviously does something to the effective bulb, because we interpret that in a top-down mechanism. So you do something, you change the input, the effective input to, to, to your brain, and then the brain is doing something to the effective bulb, even if you stimulate only one nostril, one, one side, then the... So something that's happening in your brain in the connection to the olfactory bulb, which is quite extensive. So the uh, the fibers that leave the olfactory bulb, it's actually only one third of the fibers that are found in the olfactory tract. So two thirds of the fibers in the olfactory tract, they come from the brain to the olfactory bulb. 
So there's lots of control from the brain, from the rest of the brain to the olfactory bulb. The olfactory bulbs are, of course, like also parts of the brain. So like what, what we showed there is that uh, you can change your your brain, you can change structures in the affected in the affected system. You talked about the hippocampus. We also see changes at the level of the hippocampus. So we see more function there, more uh, stronger activation there, and also have indications of an increase in volume at the level of the hippocampus. So and, and as you mentioned in humans, there is some uh, form of this. I think it's more established in humans that there's also regeneration at the level of the hippocampus. And this might well have to do with um, regeneration of neurons at the level of the hippocampus. So just on the patient side, what are they saying to you after they do the training? Well, they like it a lot because like it, uh, they, so it gives you some control about your effective loss. So it's something you can do yourself. Of course, they are, when I say like it a lot, this is only a certain group of our patients. There are also many patients, they stop training, you know, they it's uh, too tedious, you know, it's it's very lengthy, the effect is not there immediately. So it's a it's a tiring business. And so some people they stop it, but then they also in a way make peace with the affected loss. So right. it helps them on their way. So it's it's to to um to say goodbye to the sense of smell in a way and focus on other things. So that's also an important process because like affective function definitely does not come back in everybody, although theoretically could, but it does not. But I think that's just the case with all neuroplasticity in adult brains. It's If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. It's that, yeah. and I've heard this from many people and doctors that are in rehabilitation from people that are overcoming spinal cord injury or they they always report to me that the people are the most successful that get the most quality of life are the ones that are coming from very strong disciplined mindset, either athletes or in police or army or military where they've had a lot of training. So they're used to having to do this kind of discipline and mm -hmm. they tend to have really good outcomes because of that background mindset. So And so part of this is like trying to show people why it's not easy to make significant change <laughs> all the time. Uh, can happen. This is the fascinating thing about the sense of smell that these neurons they can regenerate. I mean, you did research on that, so you're the specialist specialist on it. But this is the basis for our patients to regain their sense of smell. And this is like, um, as you know, it's like it's not normal. I mean, it's completely this com complete neurons, olfactory receptor neurons. They have a, a dendrites. They have a, uh, the cell body. They have an axon. And these are complicated structures, as, as everything in the body is complicated, but these are very complicated structures. And when they degenerate, they need to find their way when they need to regenerate from basal cells, from the uh, globose basal cells in the close to, to the basal membrane in the olfactory mucosa, which is sitting right be between your eyes up in the nasal cavity. So from there, the neurons, they are regenerating and they have to send their axons, so their extensions from the nose into the brain to the olfactory bulb that is sort of lying between your eyes. This is the first relay center of the nasal cavity. And COVID-19, this is affecting the olfactory receptor neurons. And it's sort of, it does that in different ways. It sort of, in one way that most people experience, it's only a temporary loss that the virus is affecting the supporting cells that are sort of helping the olfactory 
our receptor neurons to function, that they are affected. Then as a secondary phenomenon, the olfactory neurons, they uh, lose function, but they come back as soon as the virus is gone. So it takes about like uh, seven days or 14 days, and then the sense of back is like off, and then it comes back again, like it has been black, and then it comes back to normal function again. But then there are people who lose the sense of on a more for a longer period of time. And obviously, oh, that's the assumption that these people, they lose their olfactory receptor neurons and they have to regrow in them. And this takes time. Estimates in rats, rats, it's very clear. So it's like about um, a couple of weeks, so eight weeks or so until they regrow their neurons. In humans, probably takes a little bit longer. So it's like uh, two months or four. So what what are the main issues that p- patients are coming to you? What drove what drove the loss of smell? There are um, four major causes. One may say one is aging. Like it's when we get older, we lose olfactory function. That varies from person to person, but overall, you can say we we're not getting better when we're older. Of course, they are like half of the population above the age of 80. They have a normal, well, halfway normal sense of smell. But actually, the other half, or at least one third of them, they have no sense of smell at all. So this is waiting for us as we get older. People at an age of 20, they may not think about it, but this is what is waiting for them. What does that mean? It means that uh, they lose uh, the a, a sense of danger. So it creates lots of insecurity when you don't have a sense of smell you don't know whether the things that are lying in your fridge whether they are whether they're rotten or not whether the milk that comes out of your bag of your milk bag if you have milk bags that whether it's rotten or not um actually regularly people with no sense of smell they have food intoxication they have food poisoning so this is also and, and what's actually worse is that it creates this sense of insecurity because everybody has this this experience at one point and then you learn that you're not fully capable to perceive everything, to, to, to have a, a good grasp of your surroundings. So your house could burn and you would not notice. Also, this is difficult. Or many people, they notice that they have a strong body odor. They, they cannot control so as a consequence, they shower like two times per day. You know, they they uh, change clothing so more than more than needed, and so like it's it's lots of insecurity. That's one thing. Then when you lose olfactory function, you also lose a sense for uh, social connections. So we communicate quite a bit over the sense of smell socially. So for instance, when a nice example is comes from a lab in Israel, from Noam Sobel's, Sobel's work. And he did this very nice work looking at the meaning of human tears. And so he made women cry, like he showed them very sad videos. And then these women cried. He looked only at women in the study, collected the tears of these women and presented the tears to men. And in men, among the many effects that he saw, it was that the libido of the men was decreased by up to 80%. So that's a very nice example of chemo communication, how we communicate with odors on a subliminal level. And then a third thing that is happening, and, and when you lose your sense of smell, you of course you miss out on all these subtle uh, hints and signs of how other people feel, you know, these this very subtle ways how we communicate with each other, how we um, can be empathic, how I can feel how other people feel. So that's, I guess it's 
underestimated. And then a third thing that is very important also is eating and drinking. So if you lose your sense of smell, you also lose your sense of flavor. Taste stays. So like sweet, sour, salty, bit umami, these stays along, but flavor is gone mostly. So it like, and this means a lot. So because our life is not entirely, but sometimes I have the feeling when we have visitors and their families with children, sometimes I have the feeling life is almost only eating because we get up, we have breakfast, and then we prepare for lunch. And in between, we have some, some other bite. And then we have like tea in the afternoon and prepare for dinner. It's, it's uh, an entire day shaped around eating experience. And if you can't perceive flavor, then you're out of this loop. So it makes your life boring and who wants to eat with people who don't like to eat so actually i don't want to have these people i would would like to have dinner with people who enjoy eating you know, who tell me what they had at the last vacation in italy so that's that's uh not all of my life is like this but some portion of my life and if i lose my sense of smell i lose out on that so that's problematic so uh, i think the interesting thing for the audience is i uh, that people may not be aware of. There's a lot because of COVID. Your your work and many other people's work in this space got amplified because there were many more people that lost their smell than normal. Uh, yes. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? You've written that into some of your papers that I've been reading. Yes, there's like a these are other causes of fatty loss. One is head trauma that I forgot to mention, and a third one is chronic rhinosinusitis. So when you have a chronic inflammation of the nasal cavity and uh, what you mentioned, what you said, is like viral infections. And among those very important COVID, so the SARS-CoV-2 virus that produces, uh, that's killing neurons in the nasal cavity, it doesn't do it directly. It's sort of, it's affecting the supporting cells, obviously. And as a consequence of that, the olfactory cells, they are uh, dying and have to be regenerated. And this uh, the thing that really struck me in your review paper that really, really stood out to me, and many people wouldn't make this association, is the interaction between smell and emotional regulation as well. You call it psychosocial functioning, but there isn't, and I heard this from Sobel from Israel too, where he's now looking at nasal cycling between the left and the right, and he's describing an interaction between the sympathetic and parasympathetic system and that balance around the amygdala, around emotional regulation. I think, isn't that so interesting that you would never, you'd never really link those two things together as much as we probably should? Mm -hmm. No, there's quite, it can be quite frightening. So clinically, we see this a lot. I mean, we have, a, so patients come to our clinic. Of course, it's a, that's a biased sample because like people who lose their sense of smell and they're not bothered by it, they would not come to our clinic. So we yeah. see only people really, um, they suffer from it. So it's, for them, the sense of smell is important. We also see other people who come for medical legal reasons, so they do not suffer, but it's kind of, that's a different crowd. But people come to us, they suffer from it. And in these patients, we see in about two-thirds of them, we see signs of depression. And this is like, the interesting thing is when affective function comes back, then also the signs of depression become less. So it clearly shows this connection between emotionality and the sense of smell. That's the interesting part also. Another interesting thing is that when people are depressed for other reasons, their sense of smell is also decreased. So you see it on both ends. So like depression and or emotionality, if you will, in a larger context, and the sense of smell, they're really tightly connected. 
And this is like, again, you know, this is connection to, to the, to certain brain structures. That's what I think. Like it's, um, so affection, like odors, they can trigger these deep emotions and they do it, they do this in a way that is slightly different from, from visual uh, impressions or from, from sounds. Of course, they, everything can be very emotional, but some odors, they really, uh, they is, touch you. Yeah, this is why real estate agents have baked bread in houses that they're selling. That's a whole, okay. and they're putting essence through homes to invoke this feeling of warmth and well-being as you walk through an empty house that they're trying to sell. It's kind of a well. Oh, these, these are not dumb creatures, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you what I hear from my colleagues from from industry is that if you put some scent into a product, then uh, people would not really perceive it. But it's like it makes the product so much more interesting compared to other products. So, like it also shows again this deep connection between us and emotionality, how we can attach to something or not. So clinically, it's quite obvious. But on the other hand, one must also say that there are people out there who lose their sense of smell and they would not even notice. That's also the other thing about this sense. You know, it's for for some people, it's very very important, and people suffer a lot when they lose it. So. They feel they disconnected to the world. It's like uh, parts of the world became black to them. So it's like without, without became colorless. This is what, what some people really report very vividly. So it's mostly you find it in young women. They are uh, have a very strong connection, typically a very strong connection to smells. So they are really, what's often mentioned there is that they, they regret not being able to smell the smell of their children, you know, of their of their partner. This is very important for for many people, and for other people, you know, they for them it's it's only about food. They don't talk about uh, social relationships, so they miss the smell of red wine, which is also important, or smell of good whiskeys, or also important. And then there's the, all these other people who couldn't care less. You know, they um, they don't even notice that they do not have a sense of smell. They had no flavor. It's kind of Difficult to imagine, but there are people out there, and not not few. Like there are people out there who eat their food and they have no flavor perception. What they perceive is sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, and some trigeminal spiciness. So it's not much. <laughs> I think in terms of the someone that's depressed and lose after you know whichever direction you want to take it in. I mean, it's kind of well known too that neurogenesis is affected too, right? So a lot of the treatments for depression stimulate neurogenesis. Well, that's what they say. Uh, that's some evidence for that. It, like the reason that we're talking about this on this podcast called Thriving Minds is because all of these things count towards neuroplasticity, showing your olfactory training. People may not be aware that the smell is directly connected to the brain, isn't it? There's a direct pathway from your nose into your brain for for the lay audience out there that won't understand how smell works. And it's one of the high, high centers of neurogenesis too. People won't understand, realize that either. And I think that's those two are so intimately connected. The antidepressant mechanism, and you're now tying that with smell as well. There seems to be a correlation or a connection there. Yes, definitely. And this is also one assumption why people with depression lose affective function. It's uh, maybe the cause of that is neurogenesis. 
that actually neurogenesis at the level of the mucosa, at the level of the affected bulb, or at the level of the hippocampus may be uh, changed or slowed down. And then this affects then your emotional processing. So that's one of the assumptions there. Yeah. So the beautiful thing about what you're doing in your clinic and in your research is focusing, and which is what I love about your research papers, is focusing on olfactory training. And that is that demonstrating and helping people see that they can bring it back, that it's not over, that there is an opportunity, maybe yes or no, we don't know for sure for everybody, but there's this opportunity. And you, how did you come up to develop that technique uh, of and picking those different essence for the training? That, that, that people can improve their sense of smell when they expose themselves to smells. This is known for, I think, since, since ages. So there are very nice examples for it. Like um, there's one, there are a couple of odors. Every one of us has examples for that because we, we when it comes to the sense of smell, everyone has, has holes in there. So they are called specific anosmias. So every one of us is very bad or it's at certain odors. That varies from person to person. But effectively wise, we are not the same. So we, uh, we differ, we differ there. And a good example where it's quite frequent is androstenone. Androstenone is an odor that's uh, not very well perceived by about 30, 40% of, of uh, humans. And the interesting, it has a very strong, I can smell it. So it has a very strong urinous smell. So very, sweaty, unpleasant. So actually I do like it, but it's that I'm one of these odd people. But it's like, it has a very sweaty urine smell. And the odd thing is that many people, when you have a large audience in front of you, I like to try it out often. And then about 100 people, about 20% or 30%, they can smell it. And they really, they, you know, they, they make faces, you know, they, they put the odor away. They really disgusted by it. And so what other, do you have? Do you have the odor in a bottle? And you open the, the lid. In the bottle, yeah. Yeah, you don't tell dissect. anyone. You just let it. You open the lid to this bottle. Exactly. And you see how people. Yeah. You see some people react, and some people uh-huh. don't at all. Exactly, and other people see that too. So it becomes quite clear that we perceive the world differently because we have different receptor equipments. And then there's one thing that is that we are different in that. And the other thing is when people expose themselves to androstenone for a longer period of time, then they can smell it. So they start to perceive it. And this oh, is where this entire idea comes from, you know, that you have odor-induced receptor expression. That's the, the the basis for that. Yeah, so everything can be changed with practice and training almost. Yes, and this is also changing then your brain, you're changing your connection to the world. It's if a uh, nice thing of use it or lose it, because mo- for most people, not for everybody, but for most people, when they uh, quit, when they quit training or quit exposing themselves to the odor, they lose also sensitivity. So, wow. So uh, now, as, a, as a doctor that's really trying to help people improve their smell, how, how do you uh, motivate people? What's your what's your secret sauce? And uh, it must be so frustrating when people stop when you know they're about to probably now be able to smell. Uh, what's your secret ingredient that you help people be able to start this or oh. continue it? Oh, that's a very good question. But like, it's there's no secret ingredient. People do what they want. So, of <laughs> course, I can I can lay it out to them and offer them possibilities. And we also have other things that we can offer next to smell training. But um, it's like as you said before, when it comes about these these uh, these 
cognitive changes. Like another important part there is physical exercise, you know. Yeah. And you can you talk to people, tell them that exercise is really important. So it shapes also regeneration. Do people leave my office and start to exercise? No, they do what they want. So, but it's important to lay it out, to point it out, and show the possibilities there. There also that it's not a hundred percent success. That it's low. This all needs to be discussed. And I think one needs to make up uh, his or her mind and decide whether I want it or I don't want it. So, like to to open this path, and then people decide what they want to do. I think this is very important, and to lay out the options that it's a possibility that it can change. And it's not some something magic, you know, but it's you can do something about it, and we know the mechanism. So, or some of the mechanisms for that. So, I think this is important to talk about that, and then many people are more motivated to to go this path, and uh, many of them they also are successful in this. So. Yes. So, as a doctor looking after a lot of patients, have, have you come to a conclusion about you can identify almost straight away someone that's going to adopt your strategy and someone that wouldn't? As an as an example of seeing lots of people. Oh no, I can't. I can't <laughs> <do it. laughs> so, so, this is like like we are like we are very different, and uh, this is also the nice thing about you is that we are different. Yes. So um, as we head towards the close, because you're very busy and we're really, really grateful for your time and thank you for everything you're doing to help people in this regard. Is there anything you'd like to tell the audience that they may not understand about smell and olfaction um, and, and me as well? Is this, Are there things that we are not aware of that you might be working on or someone an expert in the area that might illuminate us on something that we could be doing in our daily practice maybe to improve our lives? You know, it's like, um, so So we do many things about electrical stimulation, about electronic noses and what we can do to help people to get the warning, for instance, when it's about danger, um, to also like olfactory implants or olfactory transplants. We work on other therapies like on uh, injections of uh, platelet-rich plasma or like on topical vitamin A applied to the mucosa. So a couple of other strategies that we are trying out where we try to make some progress. So this is what's happening clinically. And of course, we work uh, much on receptors because there are new techniques where that allow us to understand the affected mucosa better. So that's one thing on the clinical side. And I think uh, COVID-19 did much to increase the interest in the sense of smell because many people, they experienced, at least for some time, how important the sense of smell can be. And I guess this is something, uh, it's true with every sense, you know, but with the sense of smell, I think it would be nice if people smell more. Like it's the, that every smell that you have, that you, a, a, cons, a, you know, a conscious, uh, affected person, is like it's a certain, it's an emotion that you experience. And it's like whether it's unpleasant or unpleasant, it doesn't matter, you know, it touches you emotionally. And to experience that and you experience that more consciously, it makes your life richer. And Absolutely. also and, and probably builds you. builds your brain muscles. Exactly. So this is like it touches you emotionally, and this has consequences for your cognitive setup. This is what what I think what what one should remember from that. Yes, cognitive reserve. 
Like yep. the more you can build, the better. That's what the nun study showed and many other studies have shown the people that are, even if they've got the Alzheimer's plaques, tangles and biomarkers, the ones that have done and built a lot of cognitive reserve can still function really well. And sense of smell comes through a different channel. So Absolutely. So thank you so much for your time today and uh, and being on our podcast and informing people about smell. I think it's I think from a neuroscience neuroplasticity perspective, it's such a great opportunity to find another route into neuroplasticity outside the standard ones you hear about all the time, which is exercise and diet and other things. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hummel, for being here, and we look forward to seeing your next pieces of work. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.